Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. For our land acknowledgement, we head to what is now known as Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which is located on the traditional territory of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Anishinaabeg, including the Chippewas and the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today, Toronto is host to many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. Toronto is also within territory of the Dish with One Spoon Treaty. The What's Up Docs podcast embraces our commitment to Indigenous rights, racial justice, and cultural equity, not only through the statement, but also in our programming and relationships with Indigenous communities. Like many of you, Rennell and I have been devastated and distressed by what's happening in Afghanistan and Haiti. On this episode's page, we'll include links to several GoFundMe campaigns, as well as to organizations that are looking for financial support to aid their on-the-ground efforts to help refugees from both of these countries. In this episode, I speak with Oscar-nominated, United Kingdom-born, and Canadian-based filmmaker Adam Benzine. During this episode, we chat about his career in journalism, his move to Canada, his critically acclaimed work called Lawnsman, Spectres of the Shoah, and his latest documentary project, The Curve, which is about the first 90 days of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States. Because in so many ways, the battles we are facing now so closely resemble those our parents and grandparents fought in the past, this episode's song is Marvin Gaye's timeless classic, What's Happening, Brother? Adam specifically connected to the following lyrics from the song. When will people start getting together again? Are things really getting better, like the newspaper said? What else is new, my friend? Because what I read, can't find no work, can't find no job, my friend. Money is tighter and it's ever been. Say, man, I just don't understand was going on across this land. Our conversation was recorded in July, 2021. You and Riddell know each other from um, you submitting to the award where we both used to work. So you you have like a long-term like working relationship, but this is our first time getting to know each other. So I just want to ask you before we get into your um, film work, like um, how did you get into journalism? I did a, my postgraduate diploma in journalism in the UK and I started off many, many years ago as a music journalist. Um, I've always kind of done trade journalism, writing about business. So I wrote about the business of the um, music industry. And from that, I, I got a job with a trade publisher in the UK called C21. And I became their factual editor, writing about the business of documentary. And through that, I got to meet lots of uh, commissioning editors, documentary makers and reality TV production companies, everything that sort of fell under the broad umbrella of factual. And uh, from that, I got a job with Real Screen. That's what brought me to Toronto. That's what brought me to North America back in 2011. And uh, I was associate editor and online editor at Real Screen and got, you know, sort of further into the documentary realm. That was when I met you know, a lot of the people who worked at film festivals and the IDA and Cinema Honors and all of these different organizations. And I think that it was during that period as a journalist and having 
interviewed a lot of documentarians that I built up the confidence to feel that I could have a go at making a documentary, especially having interviewed filmmakers like um, Sebastian Junger and David France, who had come from a journalism background. And I felt that some of the skills that I had as a journalist, notably interviewing and research and generally storytelling would transfer quite well into filmmaking, would be good skills to make certain kinds of documentaries. Um, and then it's really, I think if I give myself credit for one thing, it's knowing the things that you don't know and surrounding yourselves with the right people who can do you know, like sometimes I meet people, I meet people from outside the industry and I tell them I don't know how to use a video camera. And they're like, well, how can you be a director if you don't know how to use a video camera? That's what you have a DP or a cinematographer for. You don't have to know everything. Yeah, we talk about, I talk in very blunt layman's terms about how I want things to look. And you empower them to, to take charge of that, you know. So, yeah, that was sort of how I got into doing uh, filmmaking and I had been you know specifically with the film about Claude Lance I had been doing research for an ongoing project that I've been working on for a book and that was when I started reading about Shoah and about his journey to make that and I could immediately see it in cinematic terms as a very emotional story and I, I felt like and I still feel like a lot of the and you see this in books and essays and things but a lot of the writing about Shoah tends to be very academic, as, as everything about the Holocaust tends to be. You get a lot of university papers about it. And I'm sure there are many filmmakers who could have made very boring films about Shoah, going into the technicality of making it. But for me, I saw this as a sort of classic hero's journey, a really emotional story of struggle. And I think part of the reason that that has been especially well-received in the filmmaking community, that film called Claude Lanzmann, Spectres of the Shoah, is a lot of documentarians see a microcosm of their own struggle in that story. You know, yes, yes, ma yes. Make, making documentaries is hell. It's hellish. You know, it's really, really hard. And there are many obstacles to overcome at the best of times. And his story is sort of representative of that in some ways of that struggle that we all face it's obviously very extreme spending 12 years and more than 200 hours of footage and getting beaten up by nazis and but i think that there's a very emotional story there and that that was what i wanted to tell was how the making of showa really made him and broke him i wanted to ask about the comment you made about um how you, know, you were interviewing all these documentarians and how that you begin to feel confident that you could um, do something similar because um, the, I think for many of those, many people, including myself, and yeah, I worked on I worked on several documentary films and I've um, done archival research on films. Primarily, that's that's what I do in story consulting now. Like one thing I've found about myself is that you know, in, in engaging with so many like great documentary filmmakers. For me, and I imagine maybe a lot of other people who may, those of us who are on primarily on the, the industry side and like below the line people, because of work with so many great filmmakers, like it's a little intimidating, like thinking about trying to make one's 
own work. Definitely. Did you like struggle with that at all? Because like the fact that you said you were confident and that you made this, you made these two phenomenal films. Well, it's like, well, like I was, what? I was, com I was confident. <laughs> I was confident I could give it a go. Okay, give it a go. Okay, okay. I mean, I did. I did worry. I did worry constantly that you know that I would make a bad film, and and people would, you know, sort of look at me at parties and wince. <laughs> and be like, hey, you made that interesting film about Claude Lance. <laughs> and I would just be, <laughs> you know, I've seen those conversations go down, like, oh, your film was really unique. Right, unique. Um, so I did, yeah, I did, I did worry about right. that. But also at the, at the time that I started doing that, and by the time I eventually interviewed him, he was 87 then. Um, and I, I felt like, you know, <laughs> other people had 30 years to make a film about Claude Lansman. And if I hadn't gone on and done that one, his story probably wouldn't have been told on camera. He wrote a memoir. And I think, you know, a lot of people have read his, his memoir, The Patagonian Hair. But a part of the reason there hadn't been a film about him is he was a very, very difficult person. And he was very difficult. Really? Because like he seems, well, you know, in the, in the opening, you have people commenting about him. And there's one guy who says like, he doesn't, I guess he respects somebody doesn't like him. Yeah, but in the film, like he seems very open and very vulnerable. Once we got going, you know, even at the age of 87, his memory of those years that he spent making the film were very, you know, from, from sort of 72, 73 to 85, were very, were kind of crystal clear. That was the work of his life. And that was one of the reasons why, having read his book, I thought it would be best to, to launch the film. It really focused on the show years rather than make a full-length biopic focusing on his whole life. I'd rather just focus on those years he spent making Shoah because I felt those were really the years that defined him. The first quote on the screen, like, touched me. Commitment is an act, not a word. And um, it reminded me so much of Bell Hooks, love is a verb, not a noun. It really brings to mind, to me, like the difference between verbalizing support and actually acting out that support, which is, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's an issue that is prominent throughout society today, throughout politics. Yeah. You know, right now there's a whole fight about voting rights and you know, the ending, um, demands to end the filibuster, but, you know, people in the White House don't seem to be, they talk about their commitment to voting rights, but they're not committed to, like, trying to do that. But also with Claude's work, I saw this, even though, like, I'm just seeing it through the lens of your documentary, that his work really is an act of, of love in a way. It's a huge act of commitment to spend that amount of time doing that work. At the time that he made Shoah, it's not like it was exactly the first Holocaust film, but a lot people had somewhat read testimony from Holocaust survivors who'd been in death camps and concentration camps, but they hadn't seen that on screen. This thing that we're used to now of seeing gray-haired survivors sitting in chairs on camera talking about it, that all came after Shoah. So he was kind of a pioneer in that respect. And what that entailed was him taking on that weight on his shoulders. And so as he was going around and interviewing these people, it, firstly, it was a huge feat for him to earn their trust. Yes. Because in the years after the Holocaust, 
they were either didn't want to talk about what they had been through or in some in some cases where they had talked to people about what they had been through they had just been not believed people didn't believe that that happened to them in the death camps and the concentration camps so first he had to overcome that and then when he did overcome that and he sat with them and and sure is a film primarily comprised of oral testimony they would talk to him for hours and so i think that's part of the reason that the film took so long and that it took him five years to edit it was he felt this huge weight on his shoulder to tell their stories. He was a mechanism to take their story to the world. And it's part of why Shoah is such a shocking film and has such a massive influence is that for a lot of people to learn about in detail what happened in, during the Holocaust and to learn about it in that way, to go to a cinema at 9 a.m. and sit down and be in the cinema until 6 p.m. with just a few breaks, and, and to have this intense experience of hearing these people talk about what they went through was groundbreaking and shocking. You know, people came out of the cinema completely pale, shaking, you know, from this experience. So, you know, when you look at his work after Shoah, he made four films from the outtake footage. Mm, okay. Because he had so much footage. So I, I think he still felt right up until his, his final film Four Sisters that he felt this pressure to continue telling their stories and that he had been entrusted with this valuable material and I think it weighed very heavily on him. What struck me was the level of emotion that he allowed because you know I'm 50 which is like weird for me to say but you know my grandfather fought in World War II in Europe I you know, came back to America, Jim Crow South, et cetera. He wasn't one of any of the soldiers who liberated the camps. He was like primarily in the, um, fought in the, in the UK. You know, growing up, you know, I learned about the Holocaust and the, you know, the specter of, of Hitler. And like, he just made sure um, I learned about that just to understand the, the extent to where hate could be taken. Even though like things, some there was a lot of, obviously some real things here in the U.S., we never really talked about the emotion of it. And well, well, the first question I want to ask you is like, how did you decide what scenes from Shoah you wanted to showcase and to highlight? Because especially if you have a, a 10 hour film, like how do you pull yes. what, what, how do you decide what to pull? You have to assume that most people coming to the film haven't seen Shoah. You, so you have to establish, I had to establish first off quite quickly what the film was, why it was such a big deal, and then really focus on the, the core elements of it, which was I wanted to have a section focused on his interviews with survivors, or the revenants, as he called them, those who returned, and the, a section focused on the Nazis. And really, I mean, we did talk about some of the technical stuff, but I really tried to keep the conversation focused on his emotional journey. There's a whole section where he talks about the challenges of making the film literally in terms of the fact that it's shot on film and that they could only film for like seven minutes at a time before they had to change the Oh reel. my goodness, and 200 plus hours of footage at seven minutes a time. I mean, seeing the canisters at the US Holocaust Memorial Museum of Shoah, and, and you get to see what a physical thing it was. And, and when you, you think about how challenging it would be to edit a 10 hour long film nowadays in Final Cut Pro with a massive timeline, 
Well, you imagine doing that physically with with yeah, film, yeah. like physically cutting, cutting, <laughs> yes, <laughs> physically cutting it. You know, was a, a mammoth undertaking. And I, I did see that there was a, a documentary uh, a year or two ago released about the the editor of Shoah. I think it was out of Montreal. But yeah, it was it was a mammoth undertaking. So I, you know, you have to look for those standout stories. And I think. Abraham Bomber. It's a section of Shoah, the Abraham Bomber sequence that people come to time and time again. And it's it's often discussed. It's extremely emotional. Um, one of the things that Lansman does in Shoah is he takes people back to sites of memory in different ways. He, ta- he took a guy uh, who was in charge of the train that would take people to the death camps. And he hired a steam train and put the guy on the steam train and made him retake that journey. He, at the very beginning of the film, he takes a guy uh, who as a boy was forced to sing songs for Nazi soldiers in a boat as they would dump the ashes of Jews who'd been gassed and then their remains had been burned and then the ashes were being dumped in the river. And as they were dumping these ashes in the river, this boy would sing songs to them to, to liven their spirits. And as a man, uh, Simon, Simon Srebnik, I think his name was, he puts him on a boat and makes him, you know, they go down a river. And he, that physical act of remembering is a thing that he, he talks about in the film. Those gestures bring people back to their sites of memory in a very physical way. And with Abraham Bomba, Abraham Bomba was a man who was, you know, forced at gunpoint to cut the hair of women before they went into the gas chamber because the Nazis used the hair as material. They valued the hair, but not the people. Because I mean, that's what I wanted to ask about because I always knew they cut the hair, but then when I was watching your, your documentary, I, I realized like, I never knew why. And I, I, I was thinking it was like a, a humiliation, like to dehumanize or... No, they used the hair. They used it as a material, as part of the war effort, part of the Wehrmacht. There was a lot that I learned about the Holocaust just from doing the work of that film. And I'm kind of in awe of people who like work at the US Holocaust Memorial Museum or who work at Yad Vashem because I don't know how they can do that every day. It's like, there are so many layers of darkness and it just gets worse and worse. The more detail you find out, you know, uh, it's part of why I can see how it affected Lansman doing that work and how, how it broke him. With that interview with Abraham Bomber, you know, he hires a barber shop and he puts him in it and he puts scissors in his hand and he has him cut the hair of a friend who was brought in. And that process of, you know, cutting hair whilst doing the interview. Uh, well, firstly, it was controversial, you know. It was controversial in, in how Lansman pushed his subjects really hard when they would reach points where they, they felt they couldn't go on or they needed to have a break or they needed to stop. He says repeatedly, this is hard, this is hard. I know this is hard, but we have to do it. You know, we have to go on. Yeah, and with the emphasis on the we. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And he felt that, 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 he, had, that he had to take that approach and he needed to. And he would often say that they were very grateful afterwards. That Yes, because this is what it reminded me of. And I've been very open about the show. I'm in therapy. I've had a lot of trauma in my life, um, but, these these exercises of you know engaging in the physical activities of the of the past trauma is very reminiscent to the type of therapy I do. It's called somatic emotional release. This is a technique developed by psychologists or psychologists, Kimber, 
which he is, but named Peter Levine. The idea behind it is that when we um, experience a trauma, if we are not in a position to fully like process that trauma because like we're still in danger, it resides in the, in the it continues to reside in the body until we are in a safe place where we can like effectively discharge that. The example my therapist gave me when I first started seeing her was, you know, you hear all these stories about when people like are out swimming in the ocean, they get like attacked by a shark. And they talk about like at that moment, even though they've seen the blood, like while they're like fighting, kind of like essentially fighting for their life against the shark, they don't feel any pain. But it's not until they're back safely on the shore where that pain comes in full force. You know, and this is our, essentially our body and our mind's way of protecting itself. Like, let me get myself out of danger because if I fully experience the trauma of this, I would probably go mad or insane or, or die. Let me get myself out of danger um, and then like be in a safe place. But a, but a lot of times with traumas, that safe space never comes. And what I saw Claude doing with these people was that he was creating that safe space in a gentle way, but really in a gentle and, and coaching way that was like very, very, like he was a therapist. He spent a lot of time with the people who he interviewed. Yeah. And for, for some of them, you know, it was, some of them never spoke again about what they went through. For others, there's, there's one interview, I, I forget who it's with, but the, this man is talking about his experiences and his daughter is with him in the room. You see her on camera. And she, she hadn't heard her own father talk about this. Wasn't until Lansman had come along that he, you know, and, and you see quite a lot of them put on a kind of brave face and a, a stubborn face. And, and then eventually, you know, once they start talking, once it starts flowing, it, you, you're right, it's like it unlocks something. It's a process of, un, a process of unlocking. And one of the things, you know, when you, when you see Shoa that's, that's for me, in some ways, was quite shocking, even that might seem quite obvious, is that with a lot of present day Holocaust films or more recent Holocaust films, you see Holocaust survivors as old people. And I, I guess you sort of have this idea of Holocaust survivors as gray haired people in their 70s, 80s, 90s, and even hundreds. But at the time that he made Shoah, you know, 30 years or so after the war, you, you're seeing people in their 40s and 50s who it's sometimes hard to forget that, that after surviving the Holocaust, they went back to work. They got right. jobs. They had lives. There was an in-between period, you know? They didn't just go from being in the camps to being gray-haired old survivors, you know? Some, some of the people who survived were 17 or 18 years old when they were in the, the death camps or the Sonder commanders. And, 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 and I know that's kind of obvious, but it's not something you often see portrayed on camera. So seeing these people in their in their 40s and 50s give their testimony is quite remarkable. And it's a thing that strikes me every time I watch Showa or see footage from Showa, is that that they're doing, you know, they're they're in the middle of their lives. I kind of knew how hard it would be, but I kind of was <laughs> also in denial about how hard it would be. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I I know I knew from the years of doing the real screen work that documentaries are very hard to make and that funding is very hard to get. But I kind of thought that I would easily get funding because it's an amazing story. 
and I didn't. That was very difficult. Mm. So how long did, did it take you to make Spectre as a show? Well, I made, I began development in 2011. I interviewed him in 2013 and it came out in 2015. So it's about four years and then two years on the road with it at festivals and, uh, you know, the awards circuit and all that kind of stuff. So it, it feels like it was quite a big chunk of my life, like four or five years in total on and off and I was working full-time whilst making it oh yeah that, that's the story of a lot of documentary filmmakers yeah exactly I mean it's unless you come from money yeah <laughs> you have another job when you're making documentaries you know it was challenging but I also feel though that the film is more or less exactly as I envisaged it would be you know I, I felt that as a as a template I used um, Errol Morris's The Fog of War that was a very inspiring film for me because I think prior to seeing that film, I wouldn't have thought that you could just put an old man in his late eighties on camera and make him the center of the story and that he would be so compelling. And that really showed me that a, a quite simple approach could work. And, and the other thing is, you know, I, I had seen this incredible archival footage. You know, I, I, I thought through the process pragmatically as well as creatively. And Lansman sold all of the outtake footage from Shoah, the stuff that isn't in Shoah, the remaining, you know, 190 odd hours of footage to the US Holocaust Memorial Museum in the 1990s. And they put it into the public domain. I knew that what would have been in commercial terms, half a million dollars worth of archival footage, I would be able to use for free if I just pay the digitization costs. So knowing that there was this wealth of archival material there to support the interview gave me, you know, I could see a process there by which I could make the film. But it's all kind of in theory, right, until you do it. I just want to give quick props to the, the US Holocaust Museum's, uh, Memorial Museum's archive. They have a phenomenal archive that I've used several times for many films I've worked on and a lot of their stuff is digitized. So I would encourage people just to go to their website and just take a look to see what, see what they have. Um, and very friendly people there too. Yes, the archive Lin is great. Lindsay and, and Lindsay Zarwell and, and Leslie, they're very, uh, very supportive people, so. But also I wanted to ask about the emotional toll of making Spectre Sashoa. Well, it was, I mean, it, I felt a, a lot of responsibility to tell his story, especially by the time we got into the editing. I mean, it was a kind of constant worry as I was making the film that he could die at any moment. In fact, he lived to be 92, but once you're interviewing someone who's in their mid eighties, you know, every day is a gift nothing is guaranteed at that age and so I felt like I did feel a lot of pressure to tell his story and I do think there is this constant thing that documentarians do or should be doing throughout the process of filmmaking which is asking yourself why you're the right person to tell this story. How did you answer that? I, I felt that as an interviewer I was the right person to tell it and I, I again went back a little bit to that thing of people haven't told this story so often with things that are a little more niche and Spectres of the Show is a film about a French historian I mean that is somewhat niche <laughs> I, I, I feel like I made it accessible but people weren't racing to make films about Claude Lansman so I, I comforted myself with this idea that if I didn't do this nobody else would so it's definitely worth a try to to make a film about this and also that if I do this and it's successful more people will discover Shoah 
more people will learn about the Holocaust. Holocaust education is in a pretty bad place. Yes, it is. At the moment in, in North America, I saw some research not that long ago that said six in 10 young people don't know that the Holocaust happened. And one in 10 young Americans think that Jews caused the Holocaust. And, and one of the things that I am quite proud of with that film is that it got bought by HBO and broadcast on HBO. That's a big deal. You know, that I feel that the film in addition to being a biographical documentary about him, is an entryway into seeing Shoah, which for some people, you know, they're, they're anxious about watching that film because they know it's going to be 10 hours long. They know it's going to be very heavy. It's intimidating, that's the word. It can be an intimidating undertaking to think I'm going to watch Shoah. And I think that my film demystifies that a little bit and serves as a good entryway. I, I've just literally just done a deal with an educational distributor called Film Platform uh, based out of Tel Aviv. And so they're going to make Spectres of the Show were available to universities and colleges. And, and I'm, I'm very pleased about that, you know. Are, are they going to um, help develop a curriculum around Yes, it? and they, they have also licensed Shower itself. So I feel like Spectres of the Show are at 40 minutes, apart from being a good length, I, I do like mid-length films, apart from being a good length, it's also a very good classroom length, you know, and it, it can be a platform for people to go further into their own research off the back of seeing my film. So I did feel that, but yeah, going back to your point, I, I do think it's good to be asking yourself, am I the right person to do this? Why am I the right person to do this? So that was, I, I mean, I, I certainly felt the weight of pressure to, to tell his story and to get it right and to do a good film. But yeah, it was a lot of pressure that I put on myself. I mean, you become passionate about these projects and no, absolutely. I mean, especially, and especially on this topic, I remember, um, this is a few years ago, I was at a event for filmmakers and I met a young, a young woman who was Jewish. She was in her mid twenties or something. And I looked at her wrist and I noticed that she had numbers tattooed on her wrist. And this is before the orange menace gotten to office. And I asked her, well, why do you have that tattoo? And apparently her grandparents, or maybe like her great-grandparents, I can't remember exactly at that point, had been in Auschwitz. And Auschwitz was one of the few camps that actually, people don't realize like, a, a, not all the camps tattooed people, but Auschwitz was one of the few. But her grandparents had been in Auschwitz and she got the tattoo to um, commemorate them. And at the time I asked her, well, why would you do that? Because I'm thinking like, oh my God, this is traumatic and everything like re reliving trauma, like why would you put that on your body? And you know, she said she wanted to honor her grandparents. And this film was about the Holocaust. I can't remember the exact theme, the film that she was working on. You know, a few years later, we get the Orange Menace in the office and you know, this resurgence of Holocaust denial. I was thinking about her and was thinking like, oh, well, that's why, because you know, there's this need to erase. And there's this quote that um, Claude says, not only did the Holocaust try to destroy the Jews, I'm probably um, bastardizing this, but also it destroyed traces of the crime. You know, they wanted to erase the traces of the crime. And, and it's, you know, that their plan was to not just kill all the Jews, but it's not like they wanted to kill all the Jews and then be like, have the history books say, hey, we eradicated these awful people. They, they wanted the history books to not have any mention of the Jews. They wanted to eradicate Jewish history. They wanted to, I mean, the, you know, the Nazis had plans to go to Egypt and carve SWAT stickers into the pyramids so that, you know, it, they could rewrite history as if 
Nazism had always been there. And part of that was, yeah, they wanted to completely eradicate. And, and that goes a little bit back to what, what you see in Shoah and what's described in Shoah, which is that they would gas the Jews, they would burn the bodies, they would grind the bones down into fine powder, and then they would take those bags of powder and ashes and dump it in the water. They, they didn't want there to be traces that, 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 that these people even existed. And, you know, that's, that's kind of terrifying. It's really terrifying. And, and it is scary when you look at how the Orange Menace, as you put it, um, you know, empowered people like Richard Spencer and, you know, brought back he empowered so many racist people, so many Holocaust deniers, genocide enablers. But also, I mean, I think that the media was complicit too. And like, I want to get your opinion on this as, as a journalist, yeah. because I remember like in the run up to his winning um, in, in 2016, which I actually predicted, unfortunately, like sometimes I hate when I'm right about stuff, but. You know, but, you know, after, you know, there's always a backlash after there's perceived advancement and, you know, you had this black man in the White House for, you know, you know, and like a lot of white folks are mad about that. Two steps forward and 120 steps back. I just remember a lot, some of the pundits that on, that were put on TV that were on his side were clearly white supremacists, like in the, in their ideology, but they were given a platform by these media platforms as if they were. It legitimized them. Yeah. I mean, part of the problem was Trump made good TV. There's no getting around that. Uh, the rating soared. Uh, I remember, you know, some years ago, I actually, I did an interview with uh, Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN. And I said, you know, do you feel responsible and complicit in how much you, you covered Donald Trump as a candidate? And... You know, he said, well, I do feel, yes, perhaps we did, you know, give him disproportionate coverage as a candidate. But as president, I think it's justified because to some degree, everything that the president does is of public interest. And, you know, I find that a bit hard to swallow now when you look at how much coverage they're still giving him by that logic. He was on the news this week. I'm like, why are we hearing his voice Right, and partly again? it's because, you know... <laughs> Joe Biden, President Biden is so reassuringly boring, which is great. But for the, <laughs> but for the, you know, because he doesn't tweet crazy shit every day. But, right, exactly. But for the news networks, you know, as the Biden administration has brought plummeting ratings, they, 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 they want that drama. They want the chaos. They loved the chaos that, that Trump brought. And, so they've gone back to covering him. And I worry about that a lot, that that will empower a run for him in 2024, you know? But I, I remember this distinctly, um, this is during the primaries and I forget which one, but it's one of the primaries that Bernie won. I think I was watching MSNBC. They had Bernie's speech like in the right-hand corner of the screen. The orange menaces, cause I guess he had won the, the primary in that state too. Empty podium. Like just showing his empty podium while the Bernie was actually speaking, you know, and like, you know, thanking the people who worked for towards his victory. But I guess they were getting good ratings with that Trump's empty podium. There's endless things that Trump was so bad at, but 
one thing you do have to give him credit for was he knew how to work a crowd and he was a natural natural showman, a natural campaigner. You know, you rarely get people who are good presidents and good campaigners. You get people who are good campaigners or who are good politicians. Uh, Joe Biden, I think one of the reasons I'm, I'm very happy that he won is he's not a particularly great campaigner. He, he's not a natural showman, you know? Um, but Trump is, I mean, Trump had charisma by the bucket load. And he was the archetype of the modern day snake oil salesman. He rolled into town and he told them exactly what they wanted to hear and it was all bullshit and they ate it up. You know, I'm gonna bring back jobs, I'm gonna fix everything. He told people what they wanted to hear, you know. I remember, I mean, he, I think in 2016, he won Michigan, right? Which was a blue state. And I remember in the, you know, the, the autopsy of the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton didn't go to Michigan and Trump went. And, and I think as a candidate, Trump was one of the only candidates who went to Michigan and went to auto factories there, went to car factories there and, and talked to people. And that kind of thing counts for a lot. Style over substance. Yeah, it's one of know. the reasons I, 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 I mean, the, the, I kind of downplayed it a bit, but the driving impetus to make the curve was I, and, and basically we all have an obligation to do whatever we could to swing the 2020 election. And I just wanted to be able to look back and tell my kids and my grandkids, you know, because they will say to us, how the hell did Donald Trump get into power? How did this happen? And I want to be able to look them in the face and say, well, we didn't all support it. And some of us fought, some of us did resist, and some of us did do everything that we could. And the curve for me was me doing everything that I could to try and have an impact on the election. And it's one of the reasons why I felt that it was important to make the film available for free on YouTube for every American to see in the run up to the election. Because, you know, even if you just changes 10 votes or 20 votes. And it makes a difference. I wanted to be able to say that, yeah, that I, that I did that and make a difference. And, and I don't know the degree to which it did, but one of the things that I did notice is that after we announced that, it got a lot of coverage in the press and, and, and they, they went big on that, was totally under control, then said they would go for free on YouTube and all in the fight for democracy was made available for free. And a lot of other documentaries of that time made themselves available for free in limited windows for people to see in the run up to the election. So how many people saw the curve on YouTube before the, because it was released a week before the election. Yeah, it was in the tens of thousands. I mean, that was one of the things that definitely impacted the film was it, the film did get somewhat lost in the noise of the election. Like in the run up to the election, it was just trying to get news coverage was very challenging. I mean, there was so much noise in the run-up to the 2020 election. So that was challenging. And I think one of the things I miscalculated, like I'm, I'm more comfortable now talking about the things I got wrong with the curve, was I thought that being first out the gate or one of the first out of the gates, there would be a huge market and appetite for a COVID-19 documentary. And what I have found and what I think a lot of people are still finding is that a lot of broadcasters don't want to program COVID related documentaries or COVID related content. And more than one broadcaster said to me, you know, we're, we're still in. Yeah, I mean, that, that was going to be my comment, because 
Like I was, I was watching, you know, I, I watched the curve um, the other day. The curve covers the first, essentially the first 90 days of the pandemic for those of y'all who haven't seen it. And I have to tell you, I, it was so infuriating and anxiety inducing too, because like a lot of the stuff I remembered, but then some of the stuff was new to me just because we were just so in it you know, when it was happening. Now that we're coming in, coming out, now now um, Ms. Rona has variants now, but just like thinking that at this point in the U.S., I think we're up to like 600 plus thousand people who died. Which is amazing. That's amazing. Like, I mean, I, I made the curve over seven months from about March to October. At the end of the film, you know, it ends with a with a line chart just going up and up and up and up and up. And I remember being like, fade it out around 200,000 because we don't want to end up with a number that's you wow. know way way over what it's going to end up being Ugh. and the, the, once we passed i mean once we passed half a million us deaths it's like stunning it's still quite stunning just to think that yeah you know the the the, the impact of that and and i i hope the history books do remember the blood that the trump administration has on its hands because it, it you know it didn't have to be like that it did not just kind of reliving the early days of the denial but also now what fox news is doing george takei but george takei on his um facebook page posted uh one of his tweets we have always been at peace with oceana and at peace with east asia yeah. and, uh, and and then it changes yeah, and they and, tear yeah. down the banners and yeah and then and, and we've always told you to take the vaccine I'm like, no, you have it. I mean, it's crazy now. You have all of these Fox News hosts questioning whether or not someone should take the vaccine. And they've and all got it. Safe? You know they've all you got should, it. They've all had it. They've all been vaccinated, all of them. You know, I mean, they are a real danger to American life, Fox News, because what they do now is so far outside the realm of reality. I mean, I want to ask you this, particularly um, you know, as a journalist from the UK, because I remember back in the day, like when I was growing up, there is this thing called the Fairness Doctrine. It, it was a mandate for news networks. For, and at that time, we only had three, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Like, I remember that time, you know, but to essentially a mandate to tell the truth. Yeah, and we still have that somewhat in the UK. In the UK, there's a regulator, Ofcom. And there was a story recently, I can't remember the context, but Ofcom fined a network for essentially not telling the truth, for misinformation various American commentators, I think maybe one of the anchors from CNN, you know, posted that this was dangerous and, and a lot of Brits defended it. And they were like, no, this is really great that we have something like Ofcom. It's the reason we don't have Fox News. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause there was, there, back in the day, there was a responsibility for the, essentially for the public good. And the, the fairness doctrine was the Reagan administration got rid of the fairness doctrine. Yeah. And there's a, you know, there's a, a really good documentary. In fact, that Morgan Neville did about uh, Buckley and Vidal and the debates. Best of enemies. Best of enemies, that's right. And although it is about the two of them and their debates that they had and them as characters, it is also about that moment of change in American television. Mm. When American television went from what it had been and there were standards of professionalism and politeness to the dawn of the cable news era, which became so much about conflict and how those primetime debates where they really went at each other's throats and they became very bitter and very acrimonious and personal, set, set the template for 
the model of conflict that has become the staple of cable news, not just in Fox News, but CNN and MSNBC. And, and this idea of having different panelists on who basically just shout at each other. The CNN and the coverage of the first Iraq war, because that was the first time, at least I remember, we began doing like 24-hour news coverage. Rolling news coverage, yeah, the Gulf War. And then I don't know if we want to throw the OJ trial into there as well. Um, yeah. you know, because that was like infotainment news as well for a lot of people. So when did you start working on The Curb? March 2020. Basically when we went on the lockdown. Went into lockdown, yeah. When we went into lockdown um, and everybody was saying, how the hell are we, is anybody going to make films? All, all production had stopped on everything. I theorized that there was a way to make a film using this abundance of chaotic news footage that existed, along with archival footage, stock footage, interviews conducted over Skype or Zoom. Because you have a lot of experts in the film, like from all around the world. We did a lot of research and we interviewed a lot of experts and uh, I, I think a nice diverse mix. You know, we, we did focus on, on having, I want, it was very important to have a diverse mix of experts who reflected contemporary America. And then to treat those interviews with VFX in a way that they would not look, because full screen Skype interviews look like garbage. Yeah, they're ugly. And so I, yeah, you could, there would be a way, you know, I came up with this concept of cropping the interviews to portraits and putting them on a glass teleprompter, which would have video in the background behind it, to have a sort of 3D way of showing footage whilst also having interviewees. And how did you manage to get the good sound? Because like another issue with Skype is sound. I was actually more concerned about the sound than I was about the video, because I know that audiences will forgive lower quality video more easily than, than they will forgive poor quality sound. And, and there's not much you can do with poor quality sound. There really isn't. So you, there's the degree to which you can treat it. So that was a, a primary concern and that was definitely a balance. And, and my, my team and I, I worked with a wonderful editor, Tiffany Bowden and a associate producer, Melissa Hood. She, she was based in LA. Tiffany's based here in Toronto with me. And we, we talked quite a lot about how we were gonna handle the sound thing and could we send microphones to people yeah, and balance that with the time constraints of wanting to move incredibly quickly to make this film. So we had all of the interviewees record sound separately at their end onto iPhones, which solves the compression issue. The compression issue where you, especially where you lose bass and you get very tinny audio is the main problem with Skype and with that. So we had them then send us the audio files of their interviews. And on the other end of that problem is you would sometimes get audio that's too echoey. You know, it sounds like it's in a cavernous room, but that's easier to fix than something that has no depth to it. So we resynced, and that was quite a challenge too. We resynced the audio that they sent us separately with the video, which had some frame rate problems to it. It was all quite a big headache in the end, but that was the thing that we knew we needed to have a separate uh, audio source. And there's only one interview in the film where we didn't have a separate audio source. And that was, we, after a lot of challenge, we managed to get uh, Dr. Mazoka Fala, who is the was was the head of the uh, Li Liberian, and he was actively handling Liberia's response to COVID nineteen at the time. So the fact that he managed to take time out, you know, and do a Skype interview with us from Liberia, 
And, you know, the video was constantly cutting out and the audio, there was no way he was, it was hard enough to get him to do a Skype interview that was, that held a consistent si signal. So the idea that he would have a separate cell phone and record the audio and send that to us was just not going to be possible. But for all the others, you know, we, we got separate audio. And, and, and I would describe it, you know, um, as a sort of Frankensteining process you know, making the curve. It was very much, it's a, it's a giant patchwork quilt. We have something like 500 clips in the film from 140 news sources, 140 sources. I mean, it was a huge undertaking. And we didn't want to just rely on stuff from Fox News and CNN and MSNBC. You know, we have stuff from a lot of, you know, King 11, Seattle and, you know, local Indiana. And yeah, yeah, and there was a lot of searching for that. It's so that was a huge research undertaking, like a lot of it was that. And this challenge with The Curve is to tell a cohesive story when you have so much information. And that's where we definitely benefited from having a 90-day structure. And you have the chapters in there as well. You're just following the timeline. I mean, it's quite a complex structure for the film because it's built around the 90 days. And those three months broadly form the three acts of the film. Three flashback sequences, in fact, Firstly, to the dismantling of the pandemic response team in the government that the Trump administration did was disastrous. You have a flashback to the Ebola outbreak and how Liberia handled that and what they learned, the lessons they learned from Ebola that allowed them, the ninth poorest country in the world, to have less than 100 people die from COVID, simply because they moved quickly and took it seriously. In New Zealand, under you know Prime Minister Arden, she, she locked everything down straight away and save the country in doing that, you know? I want to ask um, particularly about the soundscape. The reason I want to ask this is because I'm actually a huge fan of like all, well, most of the Aliens movies, you know, Alien 1 and 2 and 3 is okay. Though 3 is like visually stunning, but the story's kind of stupid. 4 was just kind of stupid. And like, I don't even like new ones, but the first one and the second one, like I love. But like on the, on the DVD slash iTunes extras, as part of the animation, they have the computer screen with the, the green type and then like this like the, these space sounds and when when I saw that in your film you know it like reminded me of like these like scenes from the animation of the the DVD extras of Alien so like was that an inspiration <laughs> or did that just happen by accident because the soundscape too is very very similar to you know the curve is also a disaster movie and, and I, I did want it to feel like a disaster movie. So we talked about that a lot in the construction of the command center in which the film takes place. And, um, you know, the construction of the command center is designed around a way to deal with the practical limitations of dealing with so much news footage. So I wanted you to feel like you are in a sort of nondescript bunker at the FBI or the NSA or some kind of government agency, surrounded by all of these different screens, at some moment in time, watching this, these 90 days unfold like a disaster, like a kind of like Chernobyl is unfolding in front of you. And so we designed various different screens and having a big screen in the center of the room that could be divided up into 16 separate monitors that could show different things, having smaller monitors you know, there are a couple of smaller monitors in the room, which was specifically designed to show footage that would be lower quality. 
like like you pulled like if the only thing that we if the only source we could find for something was youtube and it was like 360p or 480p and blowing it up would make it look terrible putting it on a smaller screen and applying a news filter to it or some kind of adding noise to it in a way that was creative was a way of working around having a variety of different video footage. And the thing is about those kind of government buildings is they don't have state-of-the-art computers. They don't. They don't have flat, they, you know, some of them still have CRC monitors. They don't even have modern monitors. They have, so, so I wanted it to be a slightly older facility. And so some of the sound design reflects that, the type, the, the fonts, reflect that they're modern they're modern variants of things like Korean you we spent a lot of time thinking about the fonts and the art design and the layout like I had the sort of a vision board for what the command center might look like and it in included a shot from war games it included the war room from Stanley Kubrick's uh, Dr. Strange Love and various other sort of command centers I think there were some shots from CTU during 24 uh, you know in terms of how I wanted it to have a blue color scheme. So a lot of the, the design, both practical and creatively, we spent a lot of time thinking about that command center. So yeah, it was, I, you know, the way I wanted it to feel. And, but, but with all of that, you also don't want it to be too distracting. Exactly. Yeah, no, it definitely wasn't distracting. But like um, for me, like who's like just a huge fan of those movies, like I, I, I recognize it was very familiar. And I was, I was actually excited to, to see that, you know, because <laughs> like, I'm, I'm a nerd like that. So <laughs> I'm a nerd like that. But I also want to talk to you about the music because, you know, you, you, it's described as a thriller and the music is like very, reminiscent of like um, famous thrillers like I'm, I'm thinking like Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy and yeah I mean it's just intense and driving and it's just it, it raises it increases anxiety. It does I mean and that was a very a very conscious choice you know I mean I, I it was an anxious time I mean you've got to remember that Mar yes. March, April, May uh -huh. it was incredibly anxious it was you know we, we didn't know we didn't know what the hell was happening I mean, do you remember it was two weeks to flatten the curve? We were under that delusion. <laughs> exactly. We, we thought that, you know, by the time May rolled around, this whole thing would be over. So uh, I, I, I reteamed with uh, Joel Goodman, terrific friend and, and one of the best composers working on documentaries in America. He did the music for the Lansman documentary. And, and so I reteamed with him for the curve. And the fact that he was able to make a full score in about four weeks is yes. remarkable, mm -hmm. really remarkable. Mm -hmm. and one of the big differences between the two films is i had so much temp music in the landsman film i knew pretty much throughout what i wanted all of the musical cues to feel like right and i gave him the full soundtrack of you know i want this to be like piano i want this to be something that's very string heavy and with the curve there just wasn't really time for that because it was made so quickly so i knew for the opening piece of music i wanted it to be like one of those classic films from the 1970s where you open with a cityscape mm -hmm. and there's shots of you know like you're in Chicago and there's a train and the opening and the opening credits are playing and it's a thriller and and yeah I'm thinking of the, the towering inferno I remember th th the music from the Bourne supremacy you know which is very like boom boom you know like with little drums going and you know you get this sense that you're in a thriller and the opening piece that he did patient zero was 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 very like straight from the off it's, a, it's an airplane tearing overhead and an immediate tension you know this is the day that patient zero has landed in america 
and the virus is already there. I mean, they say it was here in December. Quite possibly, you know, before we identified the first patient, I mean, almost certainly, but that's the date from which we know officially the first person in America was diagnosed with COVID. Aside from that, though, he, he pretty much had a blank canvas for doing the school. And that produced such interesting work, you know, things that I hadn't imagined. And, and I think if, I'm, if I am able to do more films, I might be braver about giving Joel or, or whoever does the composition of the music freer reign to work with something that doesn't have temp music in place and see what they come up with. Where we did talk about musical cues, we, it, we talked about the Bourne identity, we talked about Contagion, a big influence, a big influence on the curve, you know, the, the constant feeling that you get in Contagion, that things are just moving a bit too quickly and they can't keep up. You can't keep up, right. Was what, you know, they, they, they were never quite in control of it and it, and it spins out of control. And, and that's exactly what happened with COVID-19. They were never on top of it. They never had it under control. I mean, I think if we had had actual leadership, then a lot of people would still be here. I mean, the difference, you know, in America, people really listen to the president. They really do. And if President Trump had just told people, this is really serious and you need to wear a mask, that alone, the lives that would have saved... Instead of him saying, you know, he's like the experts say you should probably wear a mask and you should, but I personally, I'm not going to wear one. I don't think I need one. You know, I mean, you see him saying that in the curve, right? That alone, the message that that sends to people when you have the president saying, well, I don't feel like I need to wear one. People think, well, you know, he doesn't, he's not wearing one. So it can't be that serious. But also he has access to the best healthcare in the world and you don't. Yeah, but that, that downplaying constant downplaying by the administrations is not a serious thing as soon as they shut things down and as soon as america went into lockdown almost immediately he was talking about reopening that doesn't send the message to people that this is a serious thing you know i mean i think some of your experts tried to well you know they they were trying to like uh, analyze like his motives uh, like from a political standpoint but he's just a he's just a pure narcissist narcissist that's it and unfortunately he tied america's response to the virus, to, a, to a, a reflection of himself personally, which didn't allow him to assess the situation honestly then, because everything has to be going great because that's a reflection on me as a great leader. As he's not capable. Yeah, and that's one of the fatal flaws in America's response. The irony is if he had got things under control, he probably would have won re-election. Ooh, but he still got a lot of votes. Yeah, I mean, a lot, yeah, a lot of political experts feel that if COVID-19 hadn't happened, Trump would have cruised to re-election. Uh. Prior to Trump, there had only been four American presidents in the last hundred years who had failed to be reelected. You know, there was George H. W. George H. W. Bush, Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, and maybe Herbert Hoover. Otherwise, the, the default template is that a president gets given a second term. I was tremendously worried in 2020 because the historical precedent was that you know. I mean, I, I would thought that. I mean, I was worried up until like a. Um, well, after the election, because we didn't know that night. You know, we didn't know until a week later. There were states still counting all the mail-in votes, you know. Because, like, I was thinking, if he wins again, we're not going to come out of this, and things are going to get worse on all the other, I mean, immigration and just, I mean, just, just everything else that he's been. 
I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I really felt that if Trump was re-elected, but I didn't feel that it would be the end of America if he was re-elected, but I felt there was a real chance that America could undergo a sort of Soviet Union-style collapse under him. The, the dismantling of America under him, the, the lack of faith in scientists, the corruption of institutions, the... You know, even now we're still seeing the undermining of the voting process. You know, the damage that he's done, it will take America decades to recover from. I saw him not as someone who just also undermines America, but represents like the worst of this country, particularly that a lot of folks of color have been like talking about forever. Like he, he was the embodiment of, of all of that. He didn't seek to be a uniter. He specifically sought to be a divider. He, he constantly directed people towards the ways that they're different, the way that you're under threat from your fellow Americans, the way that, you know, outsiders, other people, foreigners, people who are different, people who don't fit that imprint of being a white 1950s American male. Constant throwbacks to a time when America was great. For some people. <laughs> You know, make America great again is codified language for make America white. Amen. Come on. Everything was a dog whistle with that guy. Everything. I, I think he threw away the whistle and the dog. He was just saying it. He was just saying it. It began with a bullshit campaign to suggest that, you know, President Obama was not an American. The bad thing. The press gave him a lot of coverage on that. And I remember when that was happening, this is before he announced, like, why are y'all doing that? He's gone, but that damage is going to take time to repair. I mean, I, I'm optimistic that it will, that it will, that America is making progress. You know, these last four years have been terrible. They've been dreadful by any metric. But you did have an African-American president with President Obama, and you will have another one. You will have a female president. Hillary didn't get there, but you will. Gay marriage is legal, and America is a country that trends towards liberties and freedom their interracial marriage was not legal and then it was women didn't have the vote but then they did the general direction that things are moving towards within the next decade cannabis will be fully legalized you know i do think things are on a positive i think when you step back and you look at the broad arc of american history things are moving in the right direction and it's hard to feel that way when you look at four years under trump but i am optimistic that the fundamental you know, that America is fundamentally getting better. Okay, I'll take that from you as a Canadian Brit, because like, as an American, <laughs> I struggle with that. I do, um, especially with this um, recent thing with just everything that's happening around voting rights. Because I remember, yeah, my, my grandfather was always very adamant about me as a kid. Like, he would quiz me when he get on my nerves, but like, now I'm like, I'm thankful for it. Like, quiz me on the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And like, cause he wanted to know what my rights were. And I remember one time, like as a, I was studying American history and like we got to the Voting Rights Act and, but we had talked about like how it had to be renewed. And uh, I remember asking my granddad, well, why do we have to renew it? Why, that, why don't you just make it like a constitution, like, like make it permanent, you know? And he said, because they want to be able to take it away anytime they can. You know, with the, the Supreme Court decision that uh, dismantled the, essentially the Voting Rights Act, that everything that's happened on the state level, well, before then around gerrymandering, everything that's happened on the state level, like in Arizona and Georgia, and then the whole thing with the members of the Texas legislature. I feel like, you know, we know what the Republican playbook is. 
But, but for me, what's frustrating is like the Democrats who are in power acting as if they're dealing with Republicans who are willing to compromise and be conciliatory when that is not the case at all. Like, like why are you not dealing in reality? I do think in his defense that President Biden does understand now that the age of bipartisanship compromise is not achievable. And I think he learned that as President Obama's vice president. I think they both, Obama administration, really went in with good faith and tried to work and really both had their eyes opened to how the Republican Party has changed and does not want to hand a Democratic presidency any sort of a win on anything and, and will not negotiate in good faith. And I think there is a way to invert that and view that optimistically. I mean, you talk about the, 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 th the threats to voting, especially in the South, and it is a cause for concern. But I think the way to be optimistic there is that that's all they have, is to try and take away people's right to vote, and they won't be successful with that. And what the Republican Party is not seeking to do is they're not seeking to diversify their base. They're not seeking, they don't want to get Black Americans to vote for Republicans. They don't want th this increasing uh, number of Hispanic Americans and immigrants and the diversification, they're not keeping up with the diversification of the South. It may well be, I know people, it's an eternal pipe dream that Texas will turn blue, but you've got to think with the diversification of Texas that within the next 25 years, it probably will turn blue. And that they're not, they're not, they're just doubling down on trying to get the white working class base to be more proactive in supporting them. And that's not a path to success. So I, I do look at the diminishment of the modern day Republican Party as a cause for positivity. And what, I mean, I mean, we could look years ahead and think to what might happen, but I think that probably there'll be a, a, there'll be a splintering between the conservative arm of the Democratic Party and the progressive arm of the Democratic Party. Yeah, like I'm, I'm waiting for, for that to happen because I'm listening to Roland Martin unfiltered and he's been talking about a lot of things, but also about these voter suppression. But he keeps bringing out the quote about like Dr. King in his letter um, from a Birmingham jail about how white supremacists are, are dangerous, but also like white progressives are too because of their um, passivity. And like this, this lack of action mate and the hoping things that will work out. I'm like, no, you can't hope things will work out. You need to do. And that's, that's essentially where a lot of my frustration lies. I do think that Biden's doing a good job. President Biden's doing a good, good job for now of holding together a very disparate democratic party. There are centrist Democrats for whom what he's trying to do is too progressive. And of course there are progressive Democrats for whom he's just not moving quickly enough. Everybody is, is kind of okay with him. And I, I do feel, you know, I, I do have respect for people who are very strongly Bernie Sanders supporters, but I do feel that Biden was the only candidate who could win. The reality of America is that there are white conservative Americans who will vote for Biden because they find him reassuring, because, he, he, you know, his son served in the military. I, I think that Biden was the only candidate who could have beaten Trump. And he constantly, you know, Trump had no ammunition with which to attack him. He never had a nickname, he never had a nickname for Biden that caught on. He called him Sleepy Joe, right? But it didn't, it didn't, you know, his crooked Hillary thing 
really caught on. And I think that by the time the 2020 election rolled around, his clown antics, people were not there for it, you know? They were like, yeah, people are dying. We're in the middle of a pandemic. The economy is bad. And a lot of the entertainment value disappeared. And I think, you know, President Biden is good at, do you support defunding the police? And he'll say no. And he'll outline policies that do support reappropriating police budgets towards other sectors, but he won't call it defunding the police. And by doing that, he doesn't give the right ammunition. They find that very frustrating. You know, and they'll say to him, do you support the Green New Deal? And he'll say no. But then he'll outline environmental reforms that go 80% of the way there. But he doesn't give them the ammunition that they want. And I, I know the right finds that frustrating. And I think that's a, a, a very good thing. I, think, I do think he's the right president for this moment, for this very fractured moment. And I hope that the Biden presidency will be a launch pad for a truly progressive president who drives you know America forward in leaps and bounds and and that he that he can hold the country together for four years or eight years and um you know I I I am I, I would say I'm a Biden, a Biden Democrat for now even though I'm a Canadian yeah I mean there there have been times living in Canada where I, I feel like I live in the last sane place on earth you know Canadians are so sensible <laughs> they're not trying to destroy their government I mean, it's just, it's just very different. Like Canadian conservatives are not pushing to repeal. They don't want to repeal, they don't want to repeal abortion laws. They don't want to ban gay marriage. You know, they're largely not arguing over ideological things. There are, are, are they're fiscal conservatives, right? And, and some of the battles that, you know, America is still waging in this day and age, like a, a woman's right to choose. And it's, and you know, the death penalty. No, no Canadian conservatives want to reinstate the death penalty. None of them would push that. And, and I do sometimes look and it's positively medieval that in this day and age, the Republican party still wants to have a debate about a woman's right to choose. Because you know? it gets people to the polls, unfortunately. Well, it gets their people to the polls. And, and it means then you're not having a conversation about fixing the education system. And the infrastructure, the yeah. Infrastructure, you know, things that really you should be focused on. So I don't know, it's, it's easy for me up here in Toronto to throw stones and I don't want to. Uh, there are a lot of stones to throw, so. There's a lot to love about America and there's a lot to feel hopeful for. And especially when you see young politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez making progress. I think it, I, I don't know if someone like AOC could ever be president given the makeup of America and how divided it is. And mm -hmm. I mean, they, she's the perfect boogeyman for Fox News. But also she knows how to handle them, so. She does. Yeah, she doesn't engage in their BS. Naturally, she is naturally social media savvy and a natural communicator in a way of which they don't have anybody like that on the right. Well, they have Trump. <laughs> I mean, they have his ability to use Twitter. I mean, he made Twitter his thing, right? It was the perfect vehicle for his impulsive thoughts. Yeah, he made Twitter his, his, his bitch, I think. He did, he, he did, you know. I, I mean, I remember somebody saying not that long ago when he was eventually banned from Twitter, they were like, you know, if they had if they had banned him from Twitter in 2016, he might never have been president. 
and that, that's that's food for thought right there amen amen all these social media platforms I'm, I'm interested to know your thoughts on this i know the pandemic was rough it was rough but i do feel like i don't know you tell me if i'm being too harsh here i feel like the in some considerable way, the documentary community didn't do a good enough job of stepping up in 2020. I made a film, Alex Gibney made a film, Liz Garbus made a film, Ai Weiwei made a documentary, 76 Days was a documentary. But I thought come November 2020, there would be a huge influx of documentaries made during the pandemic. Like this is our moment. This was the moment when we needed documentarians. And when the pandemic started, like in my role as um, uh, running this fiscal sponsorship department um, where I used to work, I did see a lot of proposals come in for pandemic documentaries. Some were viable, um, some weren't, but also a lot of filmmakers were just like, like the rest of us in shock and in trauma. I know. But that's when you need documentarians. That's when you need journalists. That's what I wanted to ask you about because like I particularly like starting this film right when everything was starting. And I just remember having conversations with filmmakers. Some filmmakers, they weren't necessarily making um, films about COVID, but they were working on their projects and, you know, or premiering at getting ready to premiere festivals and like everything just stopped. And a lot of the sustainability issues that the documentary community had been talking about for years, but really had not been acting on that came, became clear. And a lot of filmmakers were just in shock and in dire straits. So that made me think about like how you started making this film right when we were on lockdown, while we were all kind of collectively dealing with this this trauma because i knew it had to come out before the election and i i remember thinking at the time i was reading all these articles about oh there's this covid documentary in the works and there's this documentary in the works and there's all these films and i remember just thinking like well where are they like what good are all these films that are going to come out you know in january 2021 as trump's being sworn in for his second term like you know, now is the time we need these films. Also, I think a lot of filmmakers were still, even those who were working on COVID dots and maybe didn't necessarily get done by by that time. Number one, used to working on uh, having, being able to work on a, on a longer timeline, but also number two, still like tied to distributing through traditional distribution models, which were completely disrupted, which you did not do. I mean, the flip side of that though is, I, you know, I lost a lot of money making the film. I, I thought that launching on YouTube for free would not significantly impact, you know, we didn't keep the film on YouTube for free. We took it down after the election. And, but that had a big impact for a lot of broadcasters because even now they're still like, well, once it's been on the internet, it's been on YouTube, they don't want to distribute it. And that was, that was discouraging. That was disappointing. These old ideas and, and festivals too, you know, like hot docs wouldn't consider programming it because it had been on the internet. And I'm like, well, this is a Canadian film that was made under extraordinary circumstances during the lockdown by a team of, you know, Canadian, mostly women, diverse women, LGBTQ women, non-white women. You know, it was me and four women who, who made the film. And that's a real success story at a time when everybody else was locked down. That's the kind of thing you should be celebrating. And, and now is not the time to be focusing on things like premiere status. Actually, I feel like all festivals should really if not get rid of premiere status like it does so much damage to filmmakers you know saying you're not going to take a film that you would otherwise take if it's not the international premiere or the north american premiere or the european premiere i don't think audiences care about it at all 
audiences care about is this the first time the film is playing in this city festivals care about it because like for them it brings them a certain level of prestige i disagree i know they think that what brings the festival prestige is having good films regardless of yes because then you have happy audiences like if you're running a festival right now mm -hmm. and you have the choice between programming summer of soul right which is on, on Hulu. versus having the world premiere of a not good film you should program summer of soul you know, and not worry about, well, I want to have th this obsession with premiere status doesn't help documentarians at all. One thing that I found, like particularly early on in the pandemic, were like filmmakers freaked out about, you know, if I put it on a you know platform, or even I've had a conversation with a filmmaker recently, like if I put it on a, on an online platform at some point, even if it's like an online festival, will that impact my, my, my distribution in the future? And I'm thinking, you know, right now, how else are you going to get your, your film out there? And you know, these are extraordinary circumstances. So I think festivals and distributors need to exercise a little bit of grace. The, the awards bodies, by and large, got it right. You know, very early on, I did a thing with The Hollywood Reporter and I said, the Oscars have to open up and allow streaming titles. There are not going to be any movies in theaters this year. A very, very good friend there who's an awards columnist says, like, I can't see that happening. Right. But of course it did happen. They realized that. And I, I do think festivals have to catch up to the reality of films are going to launch in all sorts of ways now on streaming services and direct to VOD and th th this idea that there's only one correct way to launch a film, which is that you have a festival premiere and then you have a theatrical release and then it's on VOD and then it goes to television. That's, that's, that's yesterday's model for releasing a film. And I think we need to look at this right now, the way things are as an opportunity to like to do things differently, but also make sure that you know filmmakers get compensated. That's the piece, that's the harder piece. That's where I really, you know, often when I, I, I speak to young folk who want to go into documentaries or students, I, I often feel like both encouraging, but trying to set their expectations realistically, mm -hmm. you know, which is like, nobody will give you money to make your first film, no one. Imagine that this is a job that you do where you will never get paid any money. Can you be happy with doing that? You know, I, I do try and be, and that's discouraging for some people to hear, right? But at the same time, I try and be like, you know, there used to be such barriers to making documentaries. And it was, you, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about this book project that I've been working on and, you look at documentaries from the 1960s to the 1990s, it was largely the preserve of white men. You know, you had Robert Drew and, and D.A. Pennebaker and Albert Maisels and Claude Lansman and Marcel Ophuls. And it's very hard for me to find filmmakers who were not white men during that period who were making big films that were getting wide recognition, you know, beyond Barbara, Barbara Koppel. And now, you know, you look at modern day and I've got so many different filmmakers to choose from from Roger Ross Williams and Dawn Porter and uh, Asif Kapadia and there's just so many um, you know Ezra Edelman and the the, the duo who made uh, Free Solo and you know th there's a lot more opportunity the barriers to entry in terms of getting cameras has become so much lower the ability to make a film I mean you see occasionally these people who make these ramshackle documentaries that blow up on YouTube and get a hundred million views, you know, like Coney and various videos. I mean, the, the gatekeeper system has changed a lot. So I do try and encourage people that there's, if you want to do a Marvel film, you have to persuade a board of people 
to give you the tap on the shoulder and give you a hundred million dollar budget. But with documentary, it's not like that. It's not like you have to climb up some mountain and Werner Herzog is on the top with a sword and he taps you on the shoulder and says, you may now be a documentarian. Go forth. Damn documentarian. I, I think that's one of the reasons why you see that women are able to make more progress in the documentary realm than on the scripted realm because of that lack of gatekeepers that they are and smaller budgets for sure. But we've definitely, there has been more progress, I think, in the documentary realm. And I, and I do feel like... I do often say to people, nobody's stopping you from making your documentary. You might not make money from it, probably won't make money from it. <laughs> and you may struggle getting it out because, I mean, especially just being, having primarily been on the industry side. I mean, yes, I mean, you definitely see more diversity um, as far as filmmakers who like submitting proposals, but there is like still um, a lot of the funding still goes to like, sometimes like moneyed white male filmmakers. Um, not just white male, but moneyed white male filmmakers, as well as even like the day to day practices. Like one thing I had to like battle against was like I was trying to act equitably, you know, and give people equal time, and like being asked to uh, play favorites, um, and and even when like playing favorites would like take away from other filmmakers, you know, and that was like really being you know that was really frustrating to to deal with particularly as a black woman, just the day-to-day -day stuff. I noticed something some time ago that doesn't really get discussed. And it's interesting. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but standing back and having a look at the US system, the majority of US gatekeepers are women. HBO documentary films is run by Lisa and Nancy. MTV documentary films is run by Sheila Nevins. CNN is Courtney Sexton. Uh, at PBS, Lois Wasson. Uh, Sundance is run by Tabitha Jackson. South by Southwest by Janet Pearson. You've got uh, Apple TV, uh, Molly is at the top there. You know, the opportunities to get, uh, Lisa Nishimura runs Netflix documentaries. It seems to me that the vast majority of gatekeepers in the US for the documentary system are women. I would say that is true. But also, like, who are they? And not saying anything against anybody, but who are they beholden to? Start, like, who's on the board? Who's funding? And sometimes they, they have to answer to those powers that be. And um, sometimes those powers that be, like, want to maintain the status quo. And if you have to, like, maintain one that funding to keep coming in, you know, you may be able to speak about diversity, but you may not be willing to act on it effectively. I do, I do feel like there's, an over-reliance on like the same 10 people who gets so much work. I mean, it's frustrating for me, right? Nobody's ever given me money to make a film. I self-finance the Landsman film. Even though they should, I mean, please, you're you're a phenomenal filmmaker. No, but maybe just like the stories you're trying, but this also the, the your art, your your artistry. It, it's a difficult period for me. You know, I do feel frustrated. I want to make more films. I don't really know how to go about it. I see, you know, I have a lot of friends on Facebook who are documentarians and they're posting about, you know, I've just been, I'm doing this film, I'm doing this film, I'm doing this film. And I'm, you know, I'm of course very happy for them, but I, there are days when I think, well, what am I doing wrong? You know, how do I get someone to give me money to, to make a film? You know, I mean, The Curb, there wasn't, I, I mean, there wasn't time for fundraising on that. I, if I was going to make money back from it, it would be for, from a sale. With The Landsman film, you know, I made the money back afterwards. Once we sold it to HBO and ZDFR took rights for France and Germany, it ended up being a profitable film. I was very proud of that. <laughs> I think maybe even more so than the Oscar nomination and HBO buying the film was, was having a profitable first film. 
No, and having all of the, the crew be on deferred salaries. And the day, you know, we got the HBO money, I wrote like 20 checks and gave them to people and just being able to pay everybody for the work that they did was such a good feeling. <laughs> and I just want to be able to make documentaries and pay people and not be begging, you know, we were able to finish the curve because Kickstarter supporters came through raised $66,000 for the film. And I was so grateful for that, but I, I just would like to not be begging for money. And Well, let me ask you this. People can get it on, is it on Vimeo? Vimeo on Demand? Yeah, and, and it will soon be moving to iTunes, both films. So like how much money do, goes into your pocket um, for the Vimeo and Demand stuff? Vimeo is a 90-10 split, right? So for every 10 bucks, Vimeo gives you nine bucks. The reality is that people can't find the film on Vimeo. Vimeo is still a specialist platform that the film community knows very well, but for everyday folk, they, they're not used to using Vimeo to watch films. Like if you want to get wide distribution, you have to be on iTunes or Amazon Prime, you know, and Amazon Prime has stopped doing third party documentaries recently, which is not good at all. But Vimeo is a great platform in terms of video quality and in terms of being favorable for filmmakers and, and encouraging filmmakers, but it's hard for people to find the film there. It's not like something like you could like type in the curve and it'll come up. I mean, even if they do, people are not used to watching films commercially. Oh, on, on, yeah, I mean, yeah, even like, because I mean, I guess watching films consistently online as a regular thing is still really new. People, you know, they, they they know Netflix, they know iTunes, they know Amazon Prime, and they know, they know Hulu, cable TV, and they know Hulu. But, but they don't really know Vimeo as of yet. No, I don't. I think it's not, you know, the money that you do get through Vimeo, they give you a very good split, better than any others, you know, and they make it easy for you to set up a PayPal account and to pay you. Uh, but I, I mean, I, you know, I want to get both films. It's, you know, I mean, I, I own both of those films outright which is great for the long tail. It means you end up having to do everything yourself. You do the posters, you do, you know, you just managed to get an educational distribution for those two films with film platform. Uh, and then, you know, I have to do the process of getting it onto iTunes and um, I did all the festival submissions. You do everything and do the sub. You're almost like a somewhat one man band. Yeah. And he, I mean, when you're making the film, you have a team of people who support you. But when that's done, they go off to separate things and you're, you're left looking after the life of the film. So, um, and that's different when you have huge, even on the awards campaigning front, once HBO came on board with the Landsman film, it made a huge difference. They cover your flights, they cover the, you know, you, you know and it's like, I, I will say that um, the awards thing in particular is tough if you don't have a big company behind you. It's tough. Like I will give, I don't know if that if I should say this or not, but I hope they don't mind me saying this. The IDA gave me help for my submission of the curve, you know, in terms of a significant discount. Because I wrote to them and I said, you know, I'm totally broke. Yeah, I'd like to submit, but it's proving too expensive. And they were really supportive and I'm really appreciative of that. We probably won't get any awards love. I'm really appreciative that they supported that. But there are other things like I couldn't submit the curve for a Peabody Award, because I didn't have 800 bucks. I mean, $800 to submit for a Peabody Award, that's insane. And when you, when you have Netflix or HBO behind you, that's confetti to them. Yeah, it's like no money. Completely irrelevant. And being able to buy, you know, those mail shots 
that everybody sends out, that being able to buy for your consideration adverts in Variety and Hollywood Reporter and banners on deadline and all of that kind of stuff. It's just when you don't have a, you know, big company behind you, it's... I was fortunate enough to um, work on the impact campaign for Loida Limbles on Food the Night and we, we um, we took a part in organizing some of um, the what would hopefully be would have been award screenings because they were vying for the awards, and like I was talking to the publicist who was kind of organizing all of that. This is before uh, the Oscar shortlist came out, and then you know the the nominees came out, and like she was like actually even though she had been a publicist for a publicist for a number of years, she was optimistic that because of the impact of COVID that a lot of films that had um, that did not have big distributors behind them would actually be on an open like a more even playing field with other with films that did because you know like for those of you who don't know um, if you don't live in LA and New York lore season is really big here they're always like these big parties you get invited to you know they send out DVDs to academy members where there are all these four-year consideration screenings like on the ground and like luncheons like they put there's a lot of money put into um the awards campaigns and because of covid we couldn't do a lot of those in-person events and um, she was optimistic that you know things would be on a level playing field but when the final nominees came out and this is like no diss to the nominees because there, there were some great films with the exception of that octopus movie like i felt like that man was stalking that poor octopus and like it was just gross like i wanted to get a restraining order for the octopus i felt with that film winning the best documentary oscar and with nomadland winning best picture at the oscars both of those films were about feeling lost and struggling to connect and I think only during COVID could those films have respectively won the best documentary Oscar and the best picture Oscar. They really struck a nerve with people in terms of the uncertainty people were feeling in the middle of the pandemic. Like what the hell is going on? And coming out of the pandemic, you know, people are gonna change their lives in massive ways. It's gonna be interesting to see how society changes after 18 months of forced introspection. People are gonna leave marriages. People are gonna quit their jobs. A lot of shifts, people are like, well, do I really want to be in this relationship? Do I really want to be in this job? Do I really want to be in this, I'm doing what I'm- I want to put up with this. Is this worth the stress? And Nomadland was a, about a woman reevaluating her life and deciding what she wanted to do to make her happy and, and feeling lost during a lot of it. And uh, my octopus teacher was the same. I mean, this guy has a midlife crisis. He's feeling disconnected from the world. And I think people had a reaction to that. I think that's why it won. I don't think it, I mean, I don't think it was the best of the five documentaries, no disrespect to them, of course. But I think that, you know, often it's about what film connects at what moment. But th this is what it reminded me of, but particularly like this, like as a, as a head or a woman, it's like that, that dude that you make eye contact with at, at an event or a club and like he makes up this whole relationship about you and you just can't shake him. And he <laughs> starts, like, that's what that movie, like, felt like to me, you know, I mean, and like, you know, there's scenes where the octopus is like pouring ink at him, clearly a defensive mechanism. And the octopus rips off its arm to get away, you know? I remember one editor as well, posting something on Twitter along the lines of, if you think there's only one octopus in that film, you're a sucker. One of the things I don't like about award system is that suddenly start comparing documentaries against each other to say which one is better. And, you know, taking a film, like Time and taking a film like My Octopus Teacher and putting them against each other and saying, which one is better? You would never take 
you know, a, a Jackson Pollock painting and take a Monet and say, which one is better? Who's going to compare, you know, impressionism against abstract art? When I made my first film, when I made the Claude Lansman documentary, you know, a lot of people asked, oh, what are you going to do next? And I said, you know, I really don't know if I am going to make any more documentaries because, you know, I made this one and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to be a filmmaker or if actually journalism is what I do, but maybe if the right film comes along, you know, it might be the only film I ever make. And now having made The Curve, and The Curve is in some ways a punk film that was just made from pure fury seeing i mean it's such an angry film i was so angry making it every day you'd see trump i think that people who saw the threat of trump which is a lot of us the thing we really feared was that not just that this guy was so stupid and so racist and so dangerous but that america would reach a, there's always some kind of crisis and that when that crisis would come his idiocy would cost many lives, whether it was a 9-11 or a Hurricane Katrina or something, there will be something. And then when the pandemic hit, you could just see it happening. This is it, this is his crisis and his idiocy cost hundreds of thousands of lives. His selfishness, his stupidity, his racism. And I was just so furious, you know, the, the, that anger really drove the making of the curve. And now coming out of the other side of that, I realized that I do want to make more films. You know, I do want to make more documentaries and I do think I can be a good storyteller. I just don't know if I'll be able to now, you know. I mean, I certainly can't make any more films out of my own pocket, you know. I mean, I don't regret making The Curve, but I lost money making it. And I, you need, I need, at this point, I need institutional support, you know. I need film funds or broadcasters to give me money to make films. And I don't know if that will happen or not. I mean, I would like to, but we'll see. We'll see, Tony, if it happens or not. Everybody, you know, money is the single biggest challenge for documentary making. There's only so much money to go around and there are so many stories to be told. So. That was my first time getting to know Adam, and it was great talking to him about journalism, documentary, and politics. Both of his films speak to the importance of archiving historical events and are infused with the hope that the knowledge gleaned can help us move towards a better future. And we need these consistent, honest, raw reminders of history, because as we all know, history is always in danger of being erased, whether that happens via war or misinformation. And a final thought for me, we in the documentary community need to recognize that a diversity of bodies does not necessarily equate to a diversity of thought. Thank you so much for listening today. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcast. In our next episode, we head back to the States and Los Angeles as I speak with filmmakers Ann Kaneko and Jen Yokim. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Renelle Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up With Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva 
on which we are recording this podcast.